if you want to flick open 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have a dispute about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. G'day everyone, my name's Dave, I'm one of the pastors here at HBC. Welcome along and for joining us online. Look, uh, we've titled this series in 1 Corinthians, Complex Relationships. But I, I do wonder, having read the passage this week, I, I do wonder maybe we should have gone with hostile relationships. Because it seems that the things that were, things, things were getting pretty hostile in the church in Corinth. If you had last year, we looked at chapters 1 to 4 and we read about how they had various kind of factions within the church talking smack about each other. And last week we read chapter five, how some of them were sleeping. There was one of them who was sleeping with his stepmother and some of them were proud about it. And in this passage we just read, some of the Corinthian Christians were talking, uh, were taking one another to the local court and suing each other. Can you imagine the kind of hostile relationships that were going on in that church? Imagine going to church and singing alongside people who had slandered you a few months ago. Or, or being in the same congregation as someone who's committed adultery with your spouse, or, or, or being next to people who are trying to take you to court to sue you the next day. How do you deal with that type of hostile relationship? And it raises a really important question for the culture we live in today. In our culture today, there's this real desire to get what we deserve and to deal with hostile relationships in a particular way. So how do you deal, how do you deal with being wronged by another Christian? What do you do when another Christian, someone in church who should love Jesus just like you do, what do you do when they cheat you? When, when, they've, when they steal from you, when they lie to you, what do you do when they hurt you? That's what this passage deals with today. And I gotta say, what Paul says, what the Bible says is pretty confronting. Because this passage goes against so much of what our culture tells us about how we should respond when we're wronged, when, when people hurt us. Because the passage that we just read suggests that you, you don't go public when you're wronged. In fact, it even goes so far as suggests that maybe it's better to accept being wronged or cheated or hurt and let it go. And if you're anything like me, that, that feels so countercultural, right? So we want to make sure we understand what this passage is saying. We're going to look through it. It'd be great to have a Bible in front of you. The, the verses will come up on the screen, but this is a passage we want to understand well. In 1 Corinthians 6, 
Paul starts by going straight to the point and he says, don't take each other to court. That's what he starts with. He says, don't allow your disputes to get to that stage. So have a look in verse one with me. He says, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? So it seems some of the people in the Corinthian church were having these disputes and they were getting hammered out in the local Roman civil courts. And it doesn't seem like they were taking these issues to court as a kind of last resort. So have a look, just look at verse five quickly. He says, is it possible that there was nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? That is, it seems that these Corinthian Christians, they weren't escalating their dispute slowly within church and then finally taking to court. No, it seems like there was, if, as soon as there was a dispute, they were going straight to a judge, straight to a court. There seemed to be this kind of culture of, I'll see you in court type mentality. Now, it's worth noting that the Roman civil courts kind of weren't the slow, orderly courts we kind of have today. Roman civil courts were a bit of a public entertainment event, a little bit more like Judge Judy. They, they had a crowd and, and it was kind of for the more wealthy and powerful. So in the city of Corinth, taking someone else to court was a good way to kind of score some social points by destroying your opponent in public. And so if you could get the judge to rule in your favour, then you'd have the public right the, the ability to say, ha, I'm right. The judge can see it, the, the crowd can see it, you're wrong and I'm right. Really, it was the court of public opinion. Now, sure, there was a judge and a courtroom, but, but really it was just a socially acceptable way to air your grievances with someone, to make it public. You tell as many people as you can and you let the world pass their own judgment between you and this person. In many ways, the Roman civil court system was a little bit like social media for us today. People just hammering it out in public. And that's what these Corinthian Christians were doing. They thought the best way to deal with their personal grievances between one another in church was to go public and air their disputes with one another in the social media forum of the day. And Paul's first words in verse 1 in the Greek are actually, how dare you? That's how he starts verse one. Paul's kind of pulling out his hair at this type of behavior from Christians. But why? Well, if you think about it, what's so wrong? If, if someone's defrauded you or cheated you, what's wrong with asking someone to mediate the dispute and make a judgment between you? What's so wrong with that? Well, take a look at verse one again. Paul's frustration isn't that they need someone to mediate their disputes. But that's not the frustration. Paul's frustration is that they're going outside the church, that they're going to people who are not Christians and they're getting them to mediate the disputes between Christians. That is, instead, Paul says they should be dealing with their disputes inside the church. Now, if you're anything like me, as soon as you hear that, that might set off some alarm bells in your mind. Like, surely there's some potential internal internal bias if a church deals with its own disputes. And we'll come back to that in a bit. But first, we need to understand why the Bible is so offended by the idea of Christians asking the world to judge their disputes. And Paul gives three reasons in these few verses in chapter 6. So the first thing Paul says is that Christians are meant to do the judging of the world, not to be judged by the world. So have a look in verse 2. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, 
Are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Paul paints this kind of mini picture of what will happen when Jesus returns and judges the world. Because when Jesus returns, if you're one of his saved people, then we don't simply escape his judgment that's coming. What we do, but even better than that, we also get to join Jesus as his co-rulers. This is an idea that Paul has already touched on in 1 Corinthians. Just turn back a page to the very end of chapter 3 in verse 21. Listen to what he says. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. The Bible describes Christians, us, that that we are the people who will inherit the universe, that that, that we are the people who will rule with Jesus when he returns. Now, if you want to chase up this idea a bit bit later, we see it in other places like Daniel chapter 7, Luke 22, 2 Timothy 2, just to name a few. This This is how the Bible views Christians, that If you're a Christian, we are about to get appointed as the co-rulers of God's entire universe. In a few weeks here in Australia, we're having a federal election. And let's just assume that there's going to be a change in government. There's this strange time between the party winning the election and yet before they appoint the new prime minister and his cabinet, before they get sworn in. And that weird period of time between they winning and before they're sworn in, that's kind of like where we live now as Christians. That right now, Jesus has won the battle. He's defeated death and he's, he has brought forgiveness and he is about to get sworn into office over all creation. And we are members of his cabinet. We are members of his government. That's the picture Paul paints of the Corinthians. He says, if you're a Christian, then you and I, we're meant to judge the world. And so when Paul hears about these Christians having their disputes and taking them those disputes to those who are not Christians, he kind of tears his hair out and he says, but you're Jesus' people. You're the ones who Jesus is going to make co-judges with him. It's being a judge is part of your saved identity. So can't you judge these things yourself? It's part of who you are. Which leads to the second reason Paul gives why they shouldn't take these disputes outside the church. Because there's something fundamentally wrong with how those outside the church actually think about life. Now, that might sound a bit harsh, but take a look what he says with me in verses 4 and 5. Have a look. Therefore, if you have disputes about such, such matters... Do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is no one among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? See, when the Corinthians had these disputes, it seems that they had a really high regard for how the world made decisions compared to how Christians did. They had a really high opinion of how the world judged things, how the world thought compared to how the church thought. And Paul says that that is really upside down. And the reason he gives is because the world, the the people who are not Christians, well, they don't think right. They don't think that Jesus is the king. 
They don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. They, they haven't understood that their lives and their eternity are completely dependent on this one guy, Jesus. And so they're living their lives rejecting Jesus as their king. And Paul says that that's a way of thinking, that, that way of life, that's a way of thinking and a way of living that Christians should scorn. Now, it's not saying scorn them personally. It's their decision to live this life without Jesus. No matter what else they're doing with their life, that's not a life that Christians should be kind of impressed by or, or hold in high esteem because they've missed the single most important thing about life. They're God who died for them. Now, if you're watching today and you're not a Christian, I'd say welcome. I'm really glad you're joining us. And I don't mean for you to get offended at what I'm saying here, what the Bible's saying. It's just that as Christians, we believe what you think about Jesus is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. I was once walking through a cemetery with a friend, long story, explain later. It was this huge cemetery, just gravestones as far as you could see. And I was walking along, just overcome with death. My friend, said to, my friend said to me, isn't it amazing? All these lives, every person, years and years, yet the only decision that really mattered was who they thought Jesus was. That's what it came down to. And that's what Paul's saying to these Christians having disputes. He's saying appointing people to decide your disputes when they have already made the wrong decision about who Jesus is, why are you putting such value on their judgments? But Paul's not finished there because he also says that they're being terrible examples to unbelievers. Just take a look from, from verse 5. Paul says, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court and this in front of unbelievers. Can you imagine what the people in the city of Corinth thought of these Christians? There's this group of people who say that Jesus is the king and they're forgiven and they're all about love. And then the next day, there's this bunch of them down at the public local courts going hammer and tongs at each other about being cheated and how they've wronged each other. The, the Corinthian church has an image problem, is what Paul's saying. The image they're presenting about what it means to be Christian, to live for Jesus, is just completely wrong. And, and look, it's not that the Corinthians are meant to present a, a perfect, happy life on the outside when that's not the reality. Paul's not telling them to pretend everything's okay and to live, plastic, uh, live a plastic life and, and lie to the world because there really were wrongs going on inside the Corinthian church. And every church, every church is filled with sinners like me, forgiven sinners, but still sinners. And Paul's not telling the Corinthian church to put on a face to the outside world, to pretend to be something else. What he is saying is that, is that they're presented, they're presenting the wrong image when they have disputes. It's a completely upside down picture they're presenting. Rather than suing each other and going to court to demand what they deserve, they should be doing something that is distinctively Christian in those moments. Paul says, when they have disputes, they should rather be wronged. Now, this is going to sound really counter 
cultural. But in verse 7, the Bible says that sometimes, if you've been cheated, defrauded, slandered, wronged, sometimes it's better to leave it than demand what you deserve. Take a look what verse 7 says with me. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. See, Paul starts by saying what kind of seems obvious from the start. He says, just by simply having these issues, these disputes going on between Christians in the first place, that's half the issue right there. You know, just just stop being jerks to each other is kind of what Paul says. And that would be a good place to start. But of course, that's that's not really possible, is it? Because we all still sin. Even as Christians, we all still sin against God and we sin against each other. And as we said before, every church is full of people who are sinners. And that means every church, every relationship, every Christian relationship is going to have conflict. I'm going to say something to you that's insensitive. You're going to gossip about her, that say something about her that you shouldn't have. He's going to overreact about something that they did and make things worse. That There are no perfect Christians, and so there are no perfect Christian relationships. We've all got things that we wish other Christians didn't say to us and didn't do to us, and we've all got things that we wish we didn't say or do to other Christians. But that doesn't mean we should respond like the world does. Because it's in that very moment when we've wronged each other that there's meant to be something really special about how Christians respond. Unlike any other people on the planet, Christians are meant to, in fact, Christians can forgive like nothing you've ever seen. That's what Paul means when he says, why not rather be wronged? Because that choosing to be wronged deciding to live with what's happened and be okay with it, that inner pain and that inner burn that it takes to do that, that's what it feels like when you forgive someone. See, I think we live in a world that doesn't really understand what it means to forgive someone. Every time I I hear someone or read something online talk about forgiveness, I just don't think they understand what they're talking about. Because either the way people talk about forgiveness in our world is either conditional, some sense that people, that I've been wronged and so this person has to earn my forgiveness. They've got to do something else, which means that I can forgive them now, which isn't really forgiveness at all, is it? It's, It's just another form of payback. If they don't think it's conditional, what they mean by forgiveness is what I call not-too-badness. That is, they've been wronged, and but over time they come to terms which, with what's happened to them because in the end it hasn't turned out too bad, that they might have grown personally from being wronged or there's some silver lining that's come out from it. And so now they've kind of come to terms with it and they, and they can say they forgive the person because it hasn't turned out too bad. But that's not forgiveness either. See, Christians have a unique sense of what forgiveness means because, Christ, because Jesus shows us what it means at the cross. The heart of the Christian message is God choosing to be wronged himself at the cross rather than pour out his good and right anger on us who have wronged him. In fact, I think the only time that the world uses the word forgiveness properly is 
as the world talks about forgiving someone's debt. This happened to me once uh, when in my teens, my parents had some friends over one day and, and, and they unfortunately parked in the driveway right underneath the basketball ring. So I was like 16 years old. I knew how cars worked. Rather than bothering my parents and their friends, I decided to unlock the car, my parents' friend's car, and take off the handbrake and slowly roll it back out of the driveway. And what I didn't notice was as the driver's side door was open and was that there was a tree right there. And as it rolled back, I heard this terrible crunch. I'd bent the driver's side door completely back on itself against the car. And my parents and their friend came out and there's, I can look at it now, I remember that there were thousands of dollars worth of damage done to this car. The door hinge, the side panel. I go to my room and kind of await the judgment. And a few minutes later, my parents come back to tell me that it's all forgiven. My parents had offered to pay for it on my behalf and then they offered me to pay for it on their behalf, but it was all dismissed. There, there was no need, it was all forgiven. Now, does that mean that their car didn't cost thousands of dollars to get fixed? No, it still did. She still would have had to go to the mechanic. She couldn't go to the mechanic and say, hey, I've forgiven the person who did this, so can you do it for free? That's not how it works. She still had to pay for it. But she took the cost on herself. She wore the cost. She was wronged and she chose to stay wronged and to not make it right. In fact, she made it right by accepting that she was wronged and continuing the relationship as if she wasn't. That's what it means to be wronged. That's what Jesus did at the cross for Christians. See, we've all wronged God. We've all cheated God out of his glory and his honor and his praise. And in Jesus, God could either demand that we pay for what we've done to him, or God could choose to be wronged. God could wear the punishment that we deserve on himself in Jesus. And that's what he did. That's what was happening at the cross 2,000 years ago. God was burning with anger within himself so as to not burn with anger against us. See, I can't think of any other way to say this other than forgiveness. If you've been really hurt, you'll know that real forgiveness burns. It hurts. To be wrong, to be cheated out of something you deserve, and to not get revenge and not seek recompense. You don't forget it. You try to forget it, but you don't pretend it didn't happen. You wear it. You wear it on the inside. That's what Paul says the Christians in Corinth are able to do. When there's disputes and wrongs done to one another, because, yep, they're still sinful, Paul says, you're Christians. You know what it means to be forgiven by God. Why not do that to each other? You know that this life is passing away and you're getting an eternity in the next life. It doesn't matter what you own now or don't own. Why not rather be wronged like Jesus was wronged for you? He says, Christians, God has given you all things. God has declared you perfect and right with him. You don't need the world. You don't even need the church to settle this. You have something better in Jesus. Do you see how God's immense love frees us to rather be wronged? Now, that's something the world should see. 
That's the image of the church that should be on display. Not Christians living perfect lives and and being perfect plastic people. No, the world should see Christians forgiving one another. I think that's what Jesus meant when he says to love one another. John 3, John 13, Jesus says, By this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Yes, that, that means Christians should first seek to be good and not wrong each other. But it also means that when we inevitably do wrong each other, the world should see us lovingly forgive each other, really forgive in painful ways. The world should look at Christians and say, hang on, how how can you even be in the same room with that person? Didn't they steal from you? Didn't, Didn't they total your car? Isn't that the guy who broke up your marriage? How can you just let that go? How can, how can you stand there and be wronged like that? That's the image that the world should have of Christians. Not that we did those things, but that we can forgive them. The world should go, boy, those Christians must have, must have something special if they can forgive like that. Let me press into this just for a moment. How are you going with forgiveness? Real forgiveness. See, it could be that until now, you've been holding on to some wrong that's been done to you by someone here at church or some other church, some offhand remark, something they did, even something really painful. And I'm so sorry that's happened. And it, it could be that that's eating away inside you and, and you're kind of wishing that there was some way to just make them feel what they made you feel, some way to turn the tables, just some way to make it even. It could even be that because you haven't brought it up, you think that's forgiveness. Because you haven't gone and spoken to them about it, but you're still holding a grudge. You're still bitter about it. Do you see that that's not how God forgives you? God doesn't pretend it's all okay between us and him while holding a grudge against us. That's not what God does. God chose to be wronged. Will you choose to be wronged and move on in love? It means we're not going to hold a grudge. We're not going to hold it over their head and wait for them to earn back our love. We're not not going to let it affect how much we love them. We're going to swallow our pride and our desire for revenge and, and we're going to really forgive them. And when we do that, it's an amazingly beautiful thing because it's what God does. Now, having said all that, it is pretty hard to go through all these ideas and not address kind of the elephant in the room. Because as soon as you bring together the idea of being wronged and church, most people can't help but jump in their minds to any number of reports of wrongs that have taken place within the church, abuse of vulnerable people, of children, uh, stories of leaders who have abused their power and committed terrible things to people. Just in the past year or so, we've heard about influential Christian Christians like Ravi Zacharias and Brian Houston who have been ousted. Their, their behaviours and actions that they've done in secret have come to the light and it's terrible. What about those wrongs? Surely Paul isn't saying that the church should simply deal with those issues in-house, right? Surely there should be some type of transparency. No, they shouldn't make sure we, they don't, they're not kind of swept under the carpet. 
That is, how do we apply 1 Corinthians 6 to an instance where church leaders have wronged people in their church? Well, the first thing to say is that the Bible also tells Christians to obey the rulers and authorities, and so that will have an effect. So places like Romans 13 say that it's part of our Christian duty to submit to the government that God has placed over us. And I think that means that there'll be times when, if there's a criminal, if there's criminal activity within the church, we'll report it. A great example of this is the mandatory reporter's law about child safety. Here at Hunter Bible Church, if we are alerted to an instance of child neglect or abuse or significant harm, then there's a legal obligation to report that to the police, and that's what we'll do. This is one of the reasons we get all of our volunteers who work with vulnerable adults and children and youth to complete the safe ministry check training and screening. So it covers a kind of a legal requirement to make sure our leaders are appropriately screened and they're fit to work with vulnerable people. And we also want to, we want to obey the law in this area. If someone doesn't have a valid working with children check, we, we don't allow them to serve in kids' ministry. And if, if something terrible happened and there ever was a, a case of significant harm to a child within HBC, then we'll report that. And we'll report the person who perpetrated it to the proper authorities. We might end up even needing to go to court against that person if the law requires us to. But I think that's just one of the tensions of holding together different parts of the Bible. On one hand, we want to follow the legal process that we're under. And on the other hand, we want to pursue repentance and forgiveness because, uh, because of the forgiveness we've received from God. We want to do both those things. But what about when it's not a criminal matter? What about when a leader abuses their power within the church? Sure, surely the worst possible thing to do then is to keep it in-house and hushed up. Well, it, and in fact, isn't that how all these church leaders that we've heard about have stayed in power? They kept it in-house and then they used their power and influence to keep it under wraps. Is Paul saying that we should rather be wronged when that happens? Well, I think this is where places like 1 Timothy 5 come in. Let me, let me read 1 Timothy 5 for us. The elders who direct the affairs of the church, well, are worthy of a double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone, so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Without spending heaps of time on it now, Paul says that church leaders have a double honour. That is, they get two honours. I think the first honour is the honour of getting paid an appropriate wage by the church. And just an aside, if you're a member of Hunter Bible Church, remember, it's uh, if you're a member, then it's important that you're a giver to church as well. Those two things are tied up. The second honour that church leaders get is the honour of being held in a trusted, trusted public position. Church leaders are people who the church has set aside and, and has kind of publicly said, this person, this one, they're trustworthy. And so if a church leader who's been appointed to, who's been entrusted with that trust, if they prove to be untrustworthy, if there's sufficient evidence that they've abused their trust, even by their own sin, Paul says they should be publicly removed. That is, 
There will be times when the church might need to make a public statement, even to the world, that says, we've removed this person as a church leader. They are no longer to be held in trust. They are no longer to be given that honour as someone trusted as an example to God's people. But again, even then, 1 Corinthians 6 would want us to hold on that and seek to reconcile, seek to see forgiveness happen at the same time. That is, it's possible on one hand to say, this person is no longer to be trusted and we forgive them and we love them. That is, we we don't trust you, but we want to express Christian love to, to you. See, church is really complex. But it shouldn't be complex because of all the sin and, and taking sides and suing one another. That, that's just normal life complexity. No, church is meant to be a whole nother level of complex. Because while there is sin and disputes, we want to be a people who choose to love the people who have done those things to us. We want to offer to forgive them and pursue reconciliation with them. The church is meant to be this beautiful complexity of sin and forgiveness. Imagine being part of a church where when you wrong someone, which we inevitably we inevitably will, that person and the church around you extends undeserved grace. Imagine being part of a community that offers forgiveness when you sin and repent. That's the type of church Paul's talking about here, and that's the type of church we want to be as well. Will you pray that we're like that? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, there's such a challenge in this passage. It's so easy to see sin, so easy to see when we're wronged. Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, keep changing us. Help us to be a community that wants to be like you, that sees that you have taken on wrong, that you've been wronged for our sake, and that we would want to be like that, that we'd be willing to be wronged, and love and forgive. Father, we do ask that as the world thinks badly of Christians in so many ways, that they would begin to be astounded by the love and forgiveness we can show to each other when we're wronged. And we ask that as they see this, they would see the great hope of the forgiveness we have from you. In Jesus' name, amen.